0: this is the sunday times politics weekly where we unpack the week's big political stories i'm mike siluma and thanks for joining us recently south africa experienced a spate of gun attacks Just this past weekend, more than 20 people were shot and killed in several township taverns. But even before that, gun violence had become endemic in South Africa, a feature of criminal activity as well as in our politics. This time on Politics Weekly, we ask why as a society we seem to be unable or unwilling to confront the scourge and whether government is doing enough to fight it. We start by chatting with uh, Jenny Irish Koboshiani, who's a researcher at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Also joining us later will be firearm legal expert uh, Martin Hood, as well as uh, Jeremy Veery from Gun Free South Africa, who also has been a major general uh, in the South African Police Service, dealing a lot uh, with gun violence uh, in in the Western Cape.
1: (music) with immediate
2: effect. When people saw, I
3: quote, in 2 years time Eskom's problems will be a thing of the past. People won't even remember load shedding." Unquote.
2: They put saliva on the paper.
3: I'm in charge. That's why
2: these
0: fools are running around here, I'm in charge. And then they share that song. Order,
2: tapasin. Point
0: of order,
1: tapasin.
0: I'm, I'm, Order, tapasin. I'm, I'm, tapasin. I'm point of order. The Ruling party by order, of order. You must step aside within 30 days. Not I'm not going to apologize.
1: He has no brains whatsoever. So the AC president was sabotaged again yesterday? Well,
0: sabotage, that can be done. This determined. is not a shit.
3: Stand <laughs> at arms, can you please come in? Point of order.
0: Jenny, shall we start here? You know, your organization, what does it do? The Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime.
2: So the Global Initiative is an international organization with a presence in a range of different countries, including South Africa and other countries in Africa. They essentially act as a think tank around issues, a research and think tank around issues related to organized crime. And obviously firearms um, is a major component of our work internationally.
0: Now, coming back to our country, everyone is worried, actually, about what seems to be like... It, our country seems to be awash with with guns eh, of all kinds. W- where do these guns come from?
2: So I think um, we recently released a report silencing the guns. Would, and in that report, we estimate that there are about 2.5 billion, I mean, million firearms, uh, illegal firearms in circulation in South Africa. Now, In the past, those firearms would have come from the political conflict that took place in the country, as well as from some of the regional conflicts uh, happening around us in countries like Mozambique. What we have found is that increasingly, people are relying on newer sources of guns, and those guns are being sourced domestically, and to a lesser extent with some cross-border raid. And people would have seen the Sunday Times article last week looking at some of the guns that are coming into South Africa from Namibia. But the majority of the guns are coming from domestic sources, and those would really come from three particular components. The first is civilian, licensed civilian firearm owners who have their guns stolen or lost. Um, and the second category would be firearms under the jurisdiction of the police. Now, that would include both firearms that are issued to police officers and carried by police officers, and the police annually release statistics on how many of those are lost or stolen. But it also would include firearms that the police store, firearms that are seized during police operations, firearms handed into police stations during amnesties, um, as well as obsolete firearms that are sent for destruction. And while we have figures for the number of loss of police issue firearms, there are no accurate figures for the number of firearms that are being lost from police stores and, and, and SAPS 13 evidence stores at local police stations. One may remember that in January this year, one police station alone, Norwood, lost 158 firearms from its evidence stores. And one also would remember that during the Colonel Lou case, which was quite a high profile case, a colonel responsible for uh, firearms in, in Kauteng was taking firearms out of police stores and supplying them to, to gangs in the Western Cape. And then, sorry, the third category, which is, which is also a really worrying category, is other government departments. Now, if you look at the number of licensed firearms in government departments, how many firearms are, uh, different government departments have, it's 1.3 million. What do, they okay. do, what, do they,
0: what do they do with the firearms in the non-police departments?
2: Well, obviously, you would have departments like Correctional Services, State Security, the Metro Police, which would have firearms, but you also have uh, conservation organisations, state conservation organisations, etc. Um, we we think that there should be a proper audit of whether, in fact, the one point three million firearms that they possess is actually a necessary is are necessary, um, for them to possess quite so many because those government departments possess. Um, if you look at different government departments, you have the police possessing a certain number of firearms and we know how many firearms there are. We have the army that possesses a certain number of firearms and we know how many firearms there are. The rest, we don't know exactly how many firearms different departments have, but according to the police, altogether together with the police and army and these government departments is 1.3 million. Now that means that other government departments outside of the police and army, possess more firearms than the police and army. They do not publicly report their losses. And our research would indicate that there are significant losses from those government departments that never get reported and there are very little consequences for those losses.
0: Mm. I, I, I'm intrigued, Jenny, that you refer to uh, government as one of the sources of, of firearms you know, in private hands or in criminal hands in South Africa.
2: Yeah, no, we we have identified government as a major source, government firearms and firearms under the d- jurisdiction of, of, of government as being a major source in, in the illicit firearm markets. We see that certain in certain crimes, you see Z88s, like, while some of those could come from Namibia, a um, large portion of them come from state firearms because the state are the main users of Z88s. You see R4s, R5s being used in CIT attacks, high caliber firearms and those are state issue firearms.
0: Mm. And in your paper that you referred to, you know, uh, silencing the guns, you gave a, in, an indication or categories of where and how guns are used in criminal activity. Could, could we go over those but it's just just the main, you know, uh, areas?
2: Sure. I think I think the majority of organized crime groupings with the exception maybe of some of your white collar crime and and maybe your and may, and your cybercrime actually make extensive use of firearms. So if you're looking at the construction mafia, if you're looking at the mafia involved in the taxi industry, if you're looking at people involved in hit squads, uh, if you're looking at the, the uh, gangs and drug kingpins involved in the drug trade, um, if you look at uh, those organised criminal elements involved in wildlife, poaching, etc., all of them make extensive use of firearms. And what we have been saying is that increasingly, While those criminal networks did not develop as a result of firearms, the availability of firearms is shaping how those networks are operating, are increasingly shaping how those networks are operating. And we're increasingly seeing significant high level of of violence um, being carried out by those organized crime networks.
3: Mm.
0: And and it seems like uh, the the usage of uh, kind of guns used uh, is actually escalating in in, in terms you know for example moving from from handguns now we're seeing uh, automatic rifles being used as well where where do those come from?
2: So there would be a a couple of sources of the of the heavy caliber um, semi automatic rifle firearms because those are not easy to license so so civilians you would have very select civilians who are sports shooters or whatever that would have access to some of those firearms. But in the main, those firearms come from three particular sources. The first is the state itself, and that's where you start seeing uh, um, the use of R4s, R5s, which are state-issue semi-automatic rifles. You would see the LM4 and LM5s, which are very similar to the R4s and R5s, and those are carried by private security companies. And then you see firearms like AK-47s. Some of them may come from firearms under the jurisdiction of the peace that have been or under the jurisdiction of the seat, state that have been seized. But some of them would also come from cross-border trade where those firearms are still, ready, are, are still are, are being used in, in those different countries by the security forces in those countries.
0: Mm. And and uh, you know generally for a layperson when we're talking uh, gun violence we're thinking gangsters you know the usual suspects you know gangsters uh, or drug lords you know that that kind of thing or armed robberies and 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 that kind of thing but it would appear that guns are also being used uh, to, uh, to some extent uh, politically but also economic I think you mentioned the what 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 did you call them the um, Construction mafia. Construction yeah. mafia, yeah, yeah. The, those kinds, yeah. The, those categories of people who are using guns, you know, to essentially yeah. terrorize society.
2: Yeah, so politically we're seeing an increase in the number of political assassinations taking place in the country. And most of those assassinations are carried out by hitmen using firearms. In fact, I think it's about, it's over 90%. Of the of the incidents of, or over 85% of the incidents of assassinations involve the use of firearms. And those and, and a significant number of those assassinations would be political. When one talks about the construction mafia and groups involved in extortion, we see some of those groups arriving on the scene of construction sites heavily armed and not just with handguns, sometimes with semi-automatic rifles.
0: It, it seems that uh, government is battling uh, to reduce, especially unlicensed firearms uh, in society. What, what should we be doing actually to to take the guns out of uh, uh, non-security uh, actors in society?
2: You know, I think I think in the in the long term we would like to see a society that is not armed, whether it be licensed or unlicensed firearms. That would be our our long, long term, we would like to see that. Whether it's, it's feasibly possible given the high levels of illegal guns to, to disarm legal guns is another question altogether. But I think we recommend a number of very concrete steps that need to be taken. And particularly when because one of the things we have also identified in our report, it's not just access to the firearm itself, but it's also access to ammunition. And so we are saying we have the ability to actually make some impact on on the availability of illicit firearms. First of all, the state needs to look at itself quite seriously and look at putting in place more serious measures to reduce the number of the leakages of state-issue firearms and firearms under the jurisdiction of the state. And there need to be serious consequences for people who lose um, state-issue firearms or who are in charge of Stores and facilities that house state firearms or firearms under the jurisdiction of the state. And there needs to be a proper reporting on transparency around that. At the moment, no government department with the exception of the police and the only report on police-issued firearms and not the number of firearms stolen from their stores, et cetera, et cetera. None of those departments report on the number of firearms they have, how many that have been lost or stolen, and what were the consequences of that. And we are saying that, as a first step, let's start holding state departments accountable for the loss of their firearms and for what is happening in that firearm environment. Another thing that we need to look at quite seriously is we have pretty good legislation when it comes to firearms in this country. Uh, and in fact, if you look at internationally, South Africa has pretty strong and good legislation around firearms. However, the problem comes in the implementation of that legislation. And the chaos that exists and has existed since at least for the last 10 years at the Central Firearms Registry is unacceptable. It is absolutely unacceptable. The corruption, the fraud, the, the gangs to gun saga that has taken place at that Central Firearms Registry, and the Central Firearms Registry's inability to provide us with concrete details on, for example, in the private security industry, how many private security firearms are being lost or stolen. That, that kind of information becomes crucial if we're going to deal with the problem. So I think we're saying that there needs to be a serious concerted effort to look at the functioning of the Central Firearms Registry. We're tired of hearing they're going to implement a turnaround strategy, which we've heard for the last 10 years. But the situation just increasingly gets worse. Now we're looking at implementing new legislation, but we still can't implement the old legislation. We need to seriously look at the ability of the state to, to do something about the Central Firearms Registry.
0: And, and before, before, before I let you go, uh, Jenny, they, do you think that we are engaging enough as a society about uh, gun control and, and, and the prevalence of uh, particularly illegal guns in society?
2: I don't think we are, you know. I don't think we are. I think that we are when there's an inc- when we have incidents like what happened over the over the last four days of the from Friday to Monday last week with the tavern shootings, then suddenly the issue of guns becomes an issue. We all know it's a problem in the country, but when it comes to sitting down and concretely listening to each other, and identifying what points. You know, even within the pro and anti-gun lobby group, you would probably find that there's some common areas that people would agree on. And we need to start listening to each other and looking at what, if people are making concrete good suggestions around how we can begin to deal with this illicit firearm market, we should be actually taking those issues up. And And the state needs to take a lead in that regard.
0: Okay, Jenny, I think we've just about run out of time. Uh, But we would like to thank you very much for joining us uh, and with your very interesting perspectives. I'm sure we'll talk again with you because this is a problem that that is just beginning to dominate our public life.
2: Thanks so much.
0: We are now joined uh, for our conversation uh, by firearms legal expert Martin Hood, as well as uh, Jeremy Vieri from Gun Free SA. Uh, Jeremy, of course, uh, is a former major general in the South African Police Service, where he would have uh, interfaced uh, a lot uh, with uh, with the problem uh, of gun violence uh, in, in in South Africa. Uh, w- welcome uh, to the to the conversation, gentlemen.
3: Hello, Mike. Hey, hi, Mike.
0: Uh, the the let, let us talk uh, first about the, the, the we, we, starting with you, Jeremy, I mean, you, you, you have been quoted as saying that uh, gun ownership is not a human right. You know, were, were you quoted correctly?
1: Yes, I was co- quoted correctly.
0: Mm, tell us more, why, why, why are you saying that? In a country where people are uh, so wedded to their rights, um, why, why do you take that position?
1: It was a so simple statement of fact. It is not a human right in our country, gun ownership. It's not necessarily a reflection of a position taken, but more so a reality in our law.
0: Hey Martin, do you want to come in on that?
3: Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, the Constitutional Court uh, on the 27th of May has made it quite clear that firearm owners have rights. It's not a human right, but we have rights. We have rights of ownership and the Constitutional Court made comments about the right to life uh, and linking firearm ownership to that as well in a positive way. So I think it's um, incorrect to simply say that firearm ownership is not a human right. That's That's an oversimplification. I think that you have to look at, the, look at the situation more holistically. And I think you have to say, why do people want firearms in South Africa? And then you have to uh, look at the obvious answer. And that is because of the South African police services. And that is because the South African police services, including your guest, Jeremy, failed in their mandate to protect South African citizens. And I just want to give an example of Jeremy. Jeremy was uh, dismissed from the police, but then he demanded armed protection from the police. So why would Jeremy be any different to me when I want to be able to protect myself and my family? He wants firearms to protect himself, well, so do I. And the reality is that so do a great number of South Africans and they've turned to firearms and particularly firearms for self-defense because of the failure of the South African police services in their mandate to protect citizens. Mm. Hey,
0: Jeremy, uh, firearms for self-protection, Martin says.
1: I think let's first go to the example that, that Martin cites. The provision of security to myself has nothing to do with self-defense. In actual fact, where I'm sitting now, I have no such security. But let me come to what it was actually about so that we clarify this point for once in a coup." I was a victim of a planned assassination about 12 years ago where people were caught waiting for me in ambush with AK-47s and a sniper's hunter's rifle to kill me. And after that, subsequently, at various times, to intercept me while I was at my house. And all of this was a result of my investigations into gang-related matters and other, other forms of organized crime in the Western Cape. And particularly researched again when uh, during our firearms investigations against certain corruption against corruption inside the police and against smuggling syndicates in the Western Cape. So the decision to provide me with security and others, including a judge at the time linked to the to a same matter, and a prosecutors who are still receiving it today, was was something mandated by the South African Police Services. And as long as I still execute responsibilities, particular to that service, I'm required to be be protected as I'm also a witness, a key witness in several organized crime cases that will still come before court and are currently in court throughout those years. So that is a totally different picture from a self-defense as a personal personally I had a licensed firearm that was part of my military training with the special air services in 1990 and and um, the moment the opportunity came to hand in that weapon I was one of the first to hand in that weapon for destruction when requested to that because my relationship with weapons was an entirely professional one. It was particular to my duties in the past as a soldier, as a bodyguard, as an intelligence officer, as a detective in the South African police service.
0: Mm. To, to the point that uh, Martin was raising, um, in, a, yes. in a broader sense, you know, that a lot of South Africans would want to arm themselves uh, for purposes
1: of self-defense. Uh, what, what would you say to them? Okay, let let me let me deal with that particular point. Is and I do not look at it in a purely legalistic, in an individualistic way. I look at it from this perspective, from a security perspective, and, and a national perspective in that regard. And I want to cite a particular report of the Minister of Police report on firearms control and management in South Africa of 2016. Now, in that particular report, a shocking admission was made. Uh, It was stated that, and I quote, loss of firearms from civilians and state institutions is the most significant source of illegal firearms in South Africa. Now, that pattern hasn't changed. And the question, as a police officer thinking with my police hat there, would would have required that we logically relook at our legislative regime, our regulatory regime, constantly, to see whether we whether it is failing, and also ourselves as the SAPs, failing to achieve the objects of. The legislation in terms of control and management so it is not a it is not something that is rest, rest in some ideologically opinionated view but something we've gone through this exercise before and i want to want to mention an example when we had a glut of illegal firearms and constant losses from the state and also from civilians that fed certain con- political conflicts in the past. In the mid nineties, when we realized as a result of previous third force activity and previous conflicts, intra-political conflicts that were there, there was a glut of firearms out there, not only, and there was a need then to relook at what we're doing. Was the act sufficient? The law sufficient? We looked at that. But we also needed to look internally at whether what we were doing in policing was the security community was adequate.
0: And you, do you think, Jeremy, that, that the, the, the community security is adequate at the moment?
1: I do not think so. I think we, on the firearms issue, there's a drastic need to do what we did in 96 in actual fact, in late 1995 to 96 to reform the firearm investigation units that we had within the organized crime components. Back then, we ran it as joint intelligence and detective operations of which I was part. And it was a particular structure that needed to look at taking out the stolen firearms out of circulation and also looking at cases where there was probably negligent or other losses of firearms, that were tied to certain violent crime. And then the purpose was to trace those those, firearms. Now we were successful in a lot of that by and large back then because we had this dedicated capability. Now at some point there was a decision and that was above my pay grade. It didn't necessarily make logical sense to us at the time to dissolve these units. We lost the capacity to go after the traffickers, to deal with the organized crime involved in, in the trafficking of firearms and the use thereof in gang conflicts, cash in transit robberies, and those kind of things. So we lost that capability, and we tackle these things on a testing, testing basis that failed.
0: Okay, Let, let's bring in Martin here, uh, Jeremy. Uh, 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 Martin, cl- clearly in the country we have got a problem of of too many guns being used in in too many crimes. You know, and also you know, it's not just uh, crimes in the street; it's crimes in the home as well. Uh, so, 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 how do we address the problem?
3: I'm going to answer a number of issues, I hope, in a, in, a, in a more brief way than Jeremy did. First of all, Jeremy simply is not answering the questions why we should not have firearms for self-defense. And he can't answer the question. Um, secondly, uh, I don't know why Jeremy does not know that there are specialized units within the police that deal with firearms being, as he says, an ex-policeman himself. There's a department, and I'm I'm looking at correspondence from this particular unit um, right now on my desk. It's firearms and explosives section, National Priority Violent Crime Bureau, Director for Priority Crime Investigation. There is a dedicated national firearm unit, which is part of the Hawks, and that in turn has dedicated provincial units. And they only investigate crimes relating to firearms. So I think Jeremy's somewhat uh, out of touch when it comes to specialized units. And I'm sitting here, I've got the letterhead, I've got the description of one of the officers involved who incidentally um, has uh, the the email address for this unit is firearmsinvest at saps.gov.za. So it's definitely the police. What I hear from Jeremy is that when he's a policeman, he's entitled to protection by other policemen. Uh, and that protection comes from the tactical response unit or team which has firearms. So my question, and it's a rhetorical question, is if Jeremy can have armed guards when he's performing um, his duties as a policeman, why can't I have the same privilege? I can't. It's not available to me. The police don't have those resources. Perhaps they don't have those resources because they're busy guarding Jeremy for just doing his job. That I find quite disturbing, actually.
0: To the point I was trying to raise, Martin, before we run out of time, that, that, to say that if we acknowledge that perhaps some people feel unsafe and therefore they would like to arm themselves, right, they, it does not address the question that I was asking, you know, whether, you know, we should be doing something, you know, as to what should we be doing, because our country clearly has got a, a firearm violence crisis.
3: Well, the question is, what comes first? because we started off the debate saying um, a firearm ownership is not a human right. The The question is though, what do we do to protect ourselves in the absence of the police providing that protection? Jeremy's given us one answer. He was privileged enough to get police protection because he's a policeman, but that doesn't answer the question that the average citizen has. And that average citizen is subject to exactly the same society, exactly the same environment and exactly the same risks that Jeremy is subject to. And that is violent crime. And I can tell you, it's a very simplistic argument to say, take guns away and we won't have crime. Yeah, but
0: what, what would you propose we do, Martin? I mean, considering that people are feeling unsafe, I, I think that that's beyond, is beyond argument that a lot of us are feeling unsafe. So we, what would you propose we do to address the problem?
3: It's very simple. Number one, the police must do their job, which they're not capable of doing because they are so corrupt and inept. And then secondly, we need proper implementation of the Firearms Control Act. And I've been instrumental in going to court on behalf of various organizations and where we have obtained court orders, telling the minister of police, telling the national commissioner, you must implement A, B and C systems such as a digitized electronic connectivity system. And they have simply not done so. So we have a situation where we have ineffective control over legal firearms, And it follows that there is even less ability to then deal with illegal firearms. And then I would also suggest, and this is something that lands directly in Jeremy's lap, and that is the Western Cape is the worst province when it comes to control of firearms by South African police. We have the Colonel Chris Prinsu incident where Officially, it was 2,200 firearms. I'm telling you, it was more like 10,000 firearms that were stolen. We have, we have gang violence in the Western Cape that is out of control because the South African police services are too busy investigating each other and fighting with each other that they simply couldn't do their job properly. And of course, there's a corruption issue on top of that as well, which goes to the very highest levels of police management. I'm going to give Jeremy a little bit of credit here because I know that he did want to continue with certain investigations into firearm matters that arose in the Western Cape and that he was politically blocked from doing so because it stood on too many political toes. So that's the environment that we have right now when it comes to firearm control. We have ineffective policing. We have rampant crime because of that. And a natural consequence is that people turn to look for means to protect themselves. And one of those means is firearms. And another means is private security, which is experiencing a boom right now because of police inefficiency. Hmm. Uh,
0: Jeremy, I I wanted to ask you, clearly we've got a a crisis of of, uh, gun violence and, and, and criminality. Uh, in, in the country, not just in the Western Cape, throughout the country, you know, if you look at what has happened this last weekend, you know, where 20 people were killed in different incidents, you know, by being shot. but And yet it does not seem like there is a national conversation at a political level, uh, to say, what, what you know, Martin has just been talking about, you know, law enforcement, etc. But it looks like the, the, as a country or as a society, it's not like something that is a priority for
1: us. Why is that? I think in terms of the political side, I am aware that, and I was part of the consultations around the new bow, firearms bow. So I think there is a thrust in the right direction to rethink how we look at firearms at the matter. So that's, that's one, that is, is definitely so. Um, there is also a look at certain units that were mentioned by markets who have not been effective in stemming this tide at all, simply because they cannot handle the, the scale of the task at hand. And uh, they are not firearm investigation units of the type that I refer to, um, of the work at the standard and scale that we used to do it in the past. This is an entirely different animal. They don't have the capacity to deal with the threat in the way it does. But, and I think perhaps if I explain the extent of of what we're talking about, what is required to be done, then you would better understand the scope of the type of work that needs to be done by the police in this, this particular issue. But we can come to that at a later point. The second point is, Nowhere have I ever said that civilians can't have guns. Now, I'm not quite sure what argument uh, Martin is raising. So,
0: so, so, your position is what, Jeremy? That, that, that civilians can have guns, shoot, you know, if, if, they, if they
1: need. Yes, there are various reasons under which they have firearms. I support. Look, hunting is a reality in our country, so there are firearms for that purpose that people's sport shooting is a reality. I think the challenge comes here is the need to re-debate the self-defense issue. Now, let me tell me what the issue is with the self-defense issue of, say, of Section 13. That one of the limits of Section 13 is that there is no requirements that must be met by the person besides just a, 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 a criminal record and uh, your ability to store it safely and a competency certificate. There's no other requirements that must be met the person to support self-defense. Now, self-defense, the way I understand it, is a common law concept in, in, in our law. In other words, it's, it's in, in the context of the way I understand it in policing, you're, it's something you, it, it, it's a, where you act to repel an immediate attack in front of you, it is never seen as preemptive in our law. So these are things. It is not things of either or, but these are limitations in our law that need to be clarified. What needs to be clarified is self-defense a permanent thing. You know? Um, and we must look further at, at how do we objectively determine your need for self, your, your self-defense. How do we validate it? You can't, you, if you're sitting in Constantia and you have five firearms that you want to exercise, whatever you want to possess to support your think what crime statistics reported to support certain crime in, 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 in that area? I would rather say me, that person who lives in there, who comes from the Altich River, who faces violence every day, Have We apply the same criteria, the greater right to it. But the question is in our legislation that does not not set requirements clearer. And that's the region where we must look at, because otherwise we leave a too wide latitude for too many people to get things for reasons that are preemptive, that have no root in objective material circumstances and that is the particular issue we must must look at
0: okay, okay. I, I think we're nearly we're nearly out of time uh, jeremy i'm going to have to unfortunately i'm going to have to ask a uh, uh, martin to come in and and have the last word you know and and then we'll, we'll wrap it up
3: well i think what jeremy's saying is if you're poor you can have a, a firearm for self-defense but if you're rich you can't which i greatly and strongly object to um, more importantly Uh, Jeremy hasn't read the Firearms Control Act because the requirements of getting a firearm for self-defence, A, you have to demonstrate a need, and that is very much a discretion that the South African police services have um, in deciding whether you can have a firearm for self-defence or not, and the need is not defined. Then there is the other administrative and peremptory requirements of the act, which are extensive, uh, which Jeremy hasn't touched on. And... um, they, they are quite onerous and the, the, the extent to which South Africans have to go through the legal requirements are far greater than than most other, if not all other countries that allow firearms for self protection. So we have a good system. Uh, and I want to end by just uh, agreeing with Jeremy in one material respect, and that is in 2013, the Secretariat of Police conduct, um, conducted some research, independent research through Wits University and it was about firearm violence and it was proper empirical objective research and they came back with a set of recommendations which the south african police services tried very hard to bury Uh, we only managed to get it recently as a result of the amendment bill but this report conclusively proved that proper policing of the nature that jeremy is talking about so with specialized units, but also boots on the ground, officers on the street doing proper crime prevention and so on, materially reduced firearm crime during a particular period. That period covered the World Cup. So I agree with Jeremy, we need better policing. I do not agree with Jeremy saying that you can ban handguns for self-defense or do away with the right to self-defense. That's simplistic. You need to look at the reasons for crime. You need to find solutions for crime. Firearms come later. Firearms are purely a response to crime. Deal with crime, then you may find a different attitude and response towards firearms.
0: Uh, gentlemen unfortunately we've run out of time uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here on the Sunday Times Politics Weekly for this week uh, and, and I'd like to thank uh, all of my guests uh, Jenny Irish-Pobosiani who's a, who's a researcher at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime uh, fire, firearms legal expert Martin Hood as well as Jeremy Vieri uh, from Gunfree, South Africa who is also a former Major General in the South African Police Service. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I am Mike Siluma. Until next time, do stay safe, stay blessed, and let's do good for our country.